the military is having one of the worst times since the Vietnam War in doing any sort of recruitment drive, and this is affecting national security. And we're going to talk about it. Hey, friends, welcome back to Campfire and Gunsmoke. This is once again Nate here behind the microphone talking to you directly from the uh, living room of my brother's house. So thank you so much for joining us today, guys. If you are listening on Spotify, Apple Apple Podcasts, or YouTube, those are the three channels we're on right now. So hopefully you're listening on one of them and this hasn't been pirated. Otherwise, please enjoy like, share, and subscribe. Join us for more of our Discord. I talk about whatever I feel like talking about. So with that being said, let's just get right into the meat and juice potatoes of this. I'm sure everyone has kind of heard about this maybe a little bit through the grapevine about the military's, quite frankly, abysmal ability to recruit right now. And everyone everyone seems to kind of be wondering, why is this? I'm, I mean, let's... Uh, Let's go through some of the articles I'm facing right here. First one I have is coming up from the uh, Politico, and this one was uh, created. Let's see, in uh, about a couple of couple of weeks to months ago. This one's from the July twenty seventh, twenty twenty, and uh, basically they're citing all kinds of different things for reasons why the military is not recruiting well, be it the COVID vaccine, obesity among recruits, competition for the labor market, just low interest in serving. And I'm going to be, and I'm going to be straight here. I actually think uh, among all that, obesity maybe might be a pretty decent contributing factor to that. I mean, there's a lot of people who are uh, coming up for military recruitment that just don't make the cut, especially for, uh, you know, more military intensive jobs and things like that. But um, there's also just, I think, realistically, if we're going to be honest with ourselves here, the main reason why the military is having such a troubling time recruiting is low interest in in serving the country right now. Like, I I personally think that uh, that is 100% the main contributing factor. And any other reasons you could cite is just kind of trying to window dress it and pawn off the problem down for a different reason. Now, why do I say that? I think it's pretty obvious. I mean, we've had, um, at least since uh, 2000, I would argue 2016, if not earlier, there has been growing sentiment among youth of America that America is a horrible country, that it's racist, that it's sexist, homophobic, insert whatever negative thing about America you can't hear. And that leads, and I, and especially when that's coming from uh, politicians, you know, you have the, um, and this is kind of from both sides of the aisle, as I see it. I mean, we obviously have things like the Democrats just straight up saying America is a racist uh, country that has been systemat- systemically racist and just was always racist and doesn't deserve to exist and that it's on stolen land and all that kind of stuff. Insert whatever Democrat talking point you want to insert there. And uh, then on the flip side, if we're going to really talk about the Republicans, they haven't exactly done a grand job either uh, saying that you know, half the country is all nutty and kind of over, you know, kind of spoiled and rotten and doesn't deserve to uh, live in this country or however you want to kind of put it. But I'm, I'm trying to come at this from the middle of the road. And what that kind of does is realistically, if we're going to 
call a spade a spade here is uh, it makes it that anyone who would willingly want to serve their country, put their life on the line to you know, go over and uh, fight and defend this nation from its adversaries uh, probably doesn't want to do that anymore. Uh, just, and I think that's kind of the short-sightedness of saying things like that, that a lot of these politicians haven't really taken into consideration yet. And that, uh, and that's really kind of exacerbated, I think, by uh, European NATO states, if we're going to be honest here. And uh, let me let me get into what I mean by that. For those who are kind of unaware, unaware of, America is basically NATO's attack dog in a lot of ways. We've basically supplied, like, I can't even remember. Depends on which specific peacekeeping mission you want to talk about. But it's generally something like 60 to 70% of uh, all troops are going to be troops and supplies are going to be American with the 30% or 30 to 40% afterwards being whatever other NATO assets are basically gifted and used, which are usually, you know, English, French, I think a little bit of German, but I was seeing a whole bunch of articles about how Germany basically has not been pulling their weight as far as NATO kind of uh, military you know, expectations have been, and that was actually, uh, I wasn't super sure what that meant originally, but I actually started looking into it, uh, relatively recently. And that kind of comes from the fact that, uh, if you remember back in 2018, I think it was about, or maybe even 2016, 17, when Trump was basically threatening to pull all, uh, American assets out of Germany, that was, kind of framed like it was an American against Germany kind of thing, but it's actually more along the lines of like a NATO versus Germany kind of thing. Because Germany has not been adequate in stockpiling armaments or tanks or any kind of military equipment to the point that it was quite frankly abysmal. They were supposed to have been using something like 2% of their GDP for the last like 40 no, basically 40, 60 years at this point, And they have n- almost never done that. Now, the argument was they didn't want to become the, uh, you know, return to the Nazi Germany kind of roots. But the problem with that was that when they weren't doing it, initially at the start, it wasn't a problem because they had all this American uh, muscle power and everything around. But as their role, especially if you look at how the European Union is kind of set up, Germany is kind of the financial hub and a main contributor to the European Union. And with them not pulling their actual weight to prepare for a military kind of campaign, it's no surprise that uh, Ukraine right now with Russia is kind of the way it is. I mean, this is kind of one of the situations you have to, uh, this is kind of a global political situation that you know, everyone kind of can see America's recruitment crisis is not, you know, unknown to our enemies. They know that we are basically the world's police. And if we cannot recruit, then there won't be an America to protect Europe, to protect Africa, to protect Asia and such. And uh, people are kind of waking up to this, especially uh, nations that actually do have potential enemies on their borders. Now, uh, Japan very recently in the wake of uh, Prime Minister Abe's murder has actually gone forward and gone to move forward with a lot of what he initially was trying to produce, which was a Japanese military of some substantial size to protect the Japan mainland and its kind of interest in the Pacific area. 
which of course, uh, under the peace treaty that was signed during World War II, they basically weren't allowed to do until because America basically said, "You will not have a military again, and we will accept and we will protect you." That was the original kind of contract. Now, eventually, the Japanese Defense Force did come up and they started to kind of remilitarize again, but it wasn't to such an extent. We still have, you know, lots of uh, American troops stationed there in Okinawa and all kinds of other military bases in Japan to kind of keep an eye on Russia and to a lesser extent China. And especially after Korea, we are heavily stationed in Korea to protect the, uh, the, uh, no, the uh, zero, the latitude line there. I can't ever remember what it actually is called, but the, the, you know, the border between North and South Korea. But uh, in the wake of the Afghanistan withdrawal, which was a, as we all know, a 20 year campaign base or a little over 20 year campaign that basically blew up in America's face uh, with many millions of dollars of military gear and uh, various other equipment left in Afghanistan. It, it basically turned into a, uh, well, a Russian and Afghanistan kind of moment for a lot of, in my personal opinion, it kind of showed the weakness of the current United States military, much like in the same way when Russia invaded Afghanistan, it showed the weakness of Russia's military. Now, I do not believe we are going to have the same kind of uh, fallout that Amer- that uh, Russia ended up having, at least not in the same way. Um, mostly because uh, if my memory serves, uh, basically the Afghanistan war, the Russia-Afghanistan war basically was the uh, precursor to the complete collapse of the Soviet Union outside of the space race. And that's what uh, kind of instigated a lot of the Warsaw Pact and various other uh, Russian kind of interests falling apart. And it's also the reason why there were so many uh, AKs and various stuff in Afghanistan at the time. Now, uh, with that being said, that kind of leads us to this is kind of our version of the exact same problem. We have left hundreds of you know millions of dollars worth of military equipment in the area, which will now be utilized by the Taliban and various other illicit groups. Because if you think that the uh, military equipment that was left there is purely staying in Afghanistan, you are sadly mistaken. It definitely will not. And in fact, there are already, already reports that India is finding American pers- or American equipment on Pakistani rebels that are attacking the border. So it's probably already starting the illicit arms dealing of all this mi- American military equipment is already being shipped out and moved around. So with that being said, a lot of our allies are starting to kind of look at America as a lot weaker of a military nation than was previously done. And that's even before we talked about the fact that, uh, you know, I'm basically just on the regular news sites and everyone's talking about how the military is unable to recruit new recruits. And of course, to anyone looking in on a geopolitical, like we talked about at the very part beginning of this podcast, there's no, shall we say, cultural cohesion to want to protect this nation. So you're not getting Americans to actually volunteer to fight for this country, especially when you know, there's been a certain amount of, um, shall we say, laziness in that you, a lot of people don't even want to work just to contribute to society in order to make money. So why would they want to take on one of the hardest jobs in the world, which is being a soldier and uh, going and doing that when they barely want to even work to make money to stay alive? So, you know, there's a lot of things that are kind of going on with that. But 
as I said, I really think the whole trying to say it's, oh, it's the COVID vaccines. They don't want to take the vaccines or, you know, it's the obesity crisis or whatever else. I mean, all in all, you can work out. People have taken medicine. You know, the military is basically known for your first day on on base is getting stuck with like 50 different vaccines. You don't know what any of that is. I, as much as I can assure you, there are probably some people that that may be the absolute reason for it. I really think that it's, if we're going to call a spade a spade here, it's the politicians fault. It's all these activist groups that were given just kind of free reign and uh, just told, and and all these groups that basically are uh, saying that this country is horrible and doesn't deserve to exist. And that's coming from, you know, politicians, it's coming from academia, it's coming from all these different sides. And kids are growing up with this kind of sentiment to the point where, you know, I'm seeing here on the Military Times, they're basically calling for veterans to basically say, hey, look, get people to to be patriotic again, man, we gotta have more, more recruits. And I'm like, again, I don't think you're going to get that. Not the way, uh, not with current because yeah, the veterans may all be, you know, even if you did manage to get all the veterans on board with actually saying, yeah, we all need to, you know, get everyone together on this and get everyone to, uh, join the army or join the Marine Corps, join the Navy and all that kind of stuff. You're still going to have, you know, your school teachers saying this country isn't worth defending. You're going to still have politicians saying this country is racist and it is horrible. And I really don't think it can be under understated that a lot of this problem that the government is currently having with recruiting new soldiers and new airmen and all that and uh, Navy personnel and all this kind of stuff is its own fault. It's a hundred percent its own fault. And when you're seeing even military commanders kind of spousing this kind of a rhetoric when let's be fair military's primary job is to fight and win wars it's not to be a social experiment or to uh, kind of say we're in line with a particular ideology or anything like that especially with a country as divided as the united states is right now the military is not doing itself any any favors either i think that in all in all this is an entirely self-made problem and it's on the political, the government, the military to fix its own problem. Now, how would you do that? I mean, first and foremost, you got to get on the page that we need to foster actual, you know, patriotism in this, in the uh, American again, you're not going to get that from a bunch of veterans saying how cool it was to be a, you know, you know, you're not going to get that from Matt Best showing off, running around on Black Rifle Coffee Company, shooting up guns. You're not going to get that from any of these uh, military YouTubers or former military YouTubers or anything like that. You're not going to get that from them. If you want to get military recruitments back and you want to actually, you know, have, sorry about that guys. If you want to have a military that's actually going to be in fighting force, you're going to have to foster some amount of patriotism. I mean, uh, let's just look back in you know, my life as a, as an, uh, as a millennial, not, I know the Gen Zers and anyone else who might be listening that are younger may not quite understand this, but after the nine 11, the September 11th, uh, 2001 attack on the United States, you could not go 15 feet without finding an American flag somewhere. Like, uh, I remember they completely reshot the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man 
so that way uh the two towers were not present because of the uh because of the bombing because of the plane attack but also uh there was so much more patriotism like spider-man swung off of american flags and there were american flags everywhere and all that kind of stuff you had stuff like the first transformers movie which was basically just uh military wankery <laughs> mixed with uh mixed with fighting robots you know things like that it was really it was really a time of uh, somewhat of american patriotism that was just outrageous now i think what fundamentally ended up becoming a problem for that was that whole ideology that we're going to go find osama bin laden and uh, kick his ass and all that kind of stuff it worked until it didn't it basically it just dragged on too long 20 years in the Middle East was just not a good look. I mean, I know that it's a counterinsurgency war, so ultimately nation building was never going to actually work, in my opinion, over there. But we went for it anyway. And during that time, back here on the home front, a lot of things started to change. And of course, we have these current kind of I, we can call them social justice movements, but they're fighting problems that seem to have been solved in the 1960s. Like, honestly, I cannot tell you when racism became a thing in the United States again. It, you could say it was always there, I suppose, but at what point did it go from being like, we were all kind of Americans, regardless of our skin color, to being that one group is completely oppressed and you know, basically saying like, oh, we've never left the Jim Crow South. I'm like, I don't know, man. I mean, I was a minority in my own school, you know, no one. In fact, I remember there were so many times when I was in uh, middle school and high school that no one actually believed that was Scottish Irish because I'm, you know, I'm from Florida. I have a tan and everything like that. But just there being like a brunette white person was such a novelty that, no one believed it. Everyone thought I was Cuban or Puerto Rican or something like that. It was more, it was easier for them to believe that I was Hispanic than it would be for me to be a white man in, in Florida. And that's, you know, that's kind of wild, honestly, but it didn't really matter because we all had a cultural cohesion. I mean, we all were on the same page. You know, some people might've been anti-war, which was at the time unpopular, but of course, as time went on, became progressively more popular and to the point where yeah i'm i'm with that on that anti-war but yeah i mean it's just not gonna work out and then now i think one of the probably the worst things is that because of the projected weakness of the united states you do get you know russia and china basically realizing that now is their time if they want to do anything especially russia and that's because nato europe Europe is not in a position to actually fight Russia, not in Ukraine. I mean, quite frankly, the only reason the Ukraine, as far as I'm concerned, the only reason the Ukraine war is still going on is because they are getting so much money, military, hardware, and support from America and NATO. But ultimately, it's just kind of prolonging the inevitable in a lot of ways. And that's mostly because of kind of what I was saying earlier about the NATO. NATO is not in a position to actually fight Russia, not from a military actual standpoint with a lot of the nation member nations of NATO not having adequate forces to fight Russia, but also from the, the um, kind of they screwed themselves on a lot of their own kind of initiatives. 
like for those of you who don't know, NATO for the for a few years here, uh, a couple years back, we're really trying to get it all on board with the green energy thing, especially Germany. They wanted to have like windmills and solar panels and all that kind of stuff. But then sadly, reality bit them in the ass with the actual ability and uh, limitations of that technology. Then they had to start, you know, aggressively importing oil and natural gas from Russia. And uh, that kind of shows you the short-sightedness of that whole thing. It also kind of shows you the short-sightedness of American policy with not wanting to be a net energy exporter in our own right. Because now we're at a very difficult position where Germany cannot, Germany and NATO realistically cannot actually make moves against Russia without fear of losing all their ability, their energy infrastructure. And that's really, we're getting into a point where wars are not fought with necessarily just guns anymore, but they're fought with lawyers and resources and intelligence. And that's where a lot of this kind of comes into, I'm sure I'm not saying anything new to military personnel or people in higher up positions, but I can, as you know, a civilian kind of lurking at it and learning it, it, that shows you a lot more of how this war I think is going to play out. Yes, there is a ground war going on in Ukraine, but the only real reason that Russia is fighting that is to preserve kind of this weird sense of national, you know, Warsaw Pact era superpowers, which I've been seeing a lot of things about how basically Russia believes that if they are not a superpower, they will cease to exist as a country, which is very possible. I mean, we have to kind of take into consideration Russia is a very big country with lots of different ethnicities and lots of different kind of areas of Russia from both the very European kind of Western side and the basically in China Eastern side. So, you know, there's a lot of things that us as Americans and, and probably most likely Europeans that are listening to this really probably don't understand about one nation with a lot of distance and uh, diversity within that nation that it's basically coming to a point with the kind of a Ukrainian situation that I don't know if it will continue on much longer. I highly doubt it'll go nuclear, mostly because I just don't believe the Russians want to destroy Ukraine or NATO for that matter. I think most people kind of understand, um, and this is going to be my military, my uh, civilian military perspective on this. I think that most people kind of understand that nukes are obsolete as far as like an actual weapon to be utilized. There may be smaller, lower tons, but absolute destruction of the enemy is a not particularly profitable to the whatever nation decides to do it, but it's also mutually assured destruction. And there's so many better ways to wage conflict now that would a preserve the uh, preserve the population and resources of the nation you are trying to control, and also just prevents you from being known as like the nation that nuked the world and all that kind of stuff. Because that's ultimately what's being kind of fought here, and that's why I think that NATO has been very you know gloves off with this whole thing. I don't necessarily think that they're worried realistically that Russia is actually planning to nuke them. I think that they know that that's not really on Russia's mind. What's probably really more realistically on their mind is that they know that Russia will cut off all their gas, cut off all their means of production, and 
basically put them in a chokehold to the point where they will surrender just purely out of economic kind of uh, warfare. And that's something that has been done before. Uh, if you actually studied World War II history, a lot of the bombing runs that the Allies did wasn't necessarily to destroy military targets, but was to destroy uh, production capabilities for military targets. I remember a very famous story that um, there was an American bomber run that was basically looking to blow up the ball bearing factory at, in, uh, in Hansburg or something like that. And the reason they were doing that is because when you destroy the ball bearings, you're able to, or destroy the ability to create ball bearings, you were able to destroy the ability to create and maintain military hardware, such as the Tiger tanks and all number of other different military hardware. Now we've gotten even further down the line where it's not even that you're trying to destroy, you know, a facility that would be able to create um, military hardware. You're just going to take away the gas from being able to actually you know, turn on the factory or uh, ship it or anything like that. And we can kind of see this, we're uh, playing in the reverse in uh, China with uh, China doing the, uh, the whole debt traps is what they, what a lot of uh, people are calling them, but it's basically making it so China can own territory legally in uh, nations that have borrowed tremendously from them. And, uh, you know, and that's how it, it works. Uh, a perfect example of this is a super port that was uh, built in Sri Lanka by China for Sri Lanka, but Sri Lanka being a small economic country, as well as uh, if you paid attention to the news very recently have collapsed, has uh, created a position where China owns that entire port for basically the next 100 years, which as far as anyone is really concerned is lifetime. It's forever. You know, it's a 99 year lease. It sounds on paper, it sounds like a very short time, but let's be honest, how many people live 100 years? I mean, if we look at America, it's only about 400 people, you know, colonists have only been here for about 400 years. So this country is incredibly young and very few other countries in the world are actually as old as 100 years. So that puts a little bit of perspective into how long 100 year lease where China owns that land in Sri Lanka is really by the long game standard. And there's a lot of situations like in Africa where that could happen and various other things. So you get these, uh, it's lawfare basically more than anything else. So, you know, the only, the thing that really brings that into the whole military recruitment issue is that I think a lot of the, the reasons why the military cannot actually recruit are the same reasons why we're seeing Russia and China kind of juxtaping for power. It's also the same reasons why NATO and uh, the United States seem to be on their way out as far as like economic uh, superpowers or as a world liberal orders or whatever you want to call them. It's uh, basically by their own admission, by the uh, ruling elite class or the governing thought body in academia, the nations of these particular of the West basically have said that they are horrible and evil and why should anyone support them? And they believe it sadly. And that's, what's brought us to this point where, yeah, I mean, the military is not going to get recruits. I mean, especially when you, even if the military did like a, a complete reversal and they said like, we're looking for the bravest and the best. We want to, 
you know, pro-American, whatever, whatever, is you're still going to have, you know, military officers that are going to, that have been indoctrinated by this ideology or they believe it. I mean, look at Millie, that she, you know, the general of, you know, the commander of basically of the, the joint commander has said stuff like that. So this is all the way up the chain. If the military really wants to get recruitment back up, they're basically looking at it and and, uh, and firing and purging of the entire military. And this is sort of what happened at the beginning of World War II in the Pacific. Um, I personally kind of feel that we ha- currently have a military brass that just does not fundamentally understand what their, what their job is. They are professional bureaucrats that wear uniforms and uh, don't ever have, don't really ever have to, to make those tough decisions as, you know, general war generals would make. And obviously to the military personnel who may be listening, you know what I'm talking about when I say that you have officers who, you know, don't deserve that bet, don't deserve the brass. And there are officers that are really out there getting some being the absolute best soldiers they can be. So obviously if you're offended by it, if being offended is deficiencies you are aware of that you are not taking into consider that you are not addressing. So maybe you're one of the military officers that needs to go as well as politicians need to stop demonizing the nation if they want to have people actually actively supporting it. And I personally, I don't know if this is the same kind of problem for law federal law enforcement, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the FBI and, you know, this IRS looking for 87 new thousand new agents and all that kind of stuff probably might have the same problem eventually. I don't know if they are or not. I haven't seen any kind of FBI recruits are down or anything like that. But I wouldn't be surprised if we find out that uh, federal law enforcement and all these different government agencies that, uh, you know, basically kind of police America will eventually run into the exact same problem where they can't get recruits either. Because who would want to work for the federal government outside of the uh, power hungry egocentrics, which they probably will sign up in droves at the start. But there's only so many people in my mind that actually are that way. So we'll find out what happens with that. Anyway, uh, so yeah, that's what I think is going on. I think uh, military is going to have to have a real, is going to basically have to have a real talk about who they are as an identity. And uh, on top of that, the politicians and uh, the federal kind of level are going to have to realistically really start looking at how they talk to the American civilians if they expect anyone to support them. And eventually, if they don't sort this out, we are going to see nations like Russia, like China, which do have a lot more cultural cohesion and are a lot more geared and centralized towards themselves, will eventually rise and uh, take over because there won't be anyone to really stop them, either from you know, the actual military campaign way that you see Russia attempting right now, or from how China is basically going to uh, loan trap the world, and then there will be no one to stop them by that time. And uh, that's how I see it. A little pessimistic, but I think everything, if uh, people start realizing that that's the game that's being played, I think we can get us get out of this really quickly. America is not known to take defeat lying down. And realistically, the, the way the reason Americans are the way they are is because we are all immigrants. 
to a certain extent. And with that, we have to come back down to an agreement, the cultural cohesion, that the reason we are here in America is not because we were necessarily born here, but because we believe in the tenets that America stands for, which is freedom, democracy, pursuit of happiness. And regardless of where your life, regardless of your race, religion, or creed, you can be an American if you believe in those tenets. But if people do not believe that or believe that, you know, they want to demonize one race over the other or one religion over the other, and that's realistically where in my lifetime this started uh, back in the early 2000s, um, this nation will not exist, uh, at least not as we know it. And a lot of most likely a lot of the freedoms that were enjoyed by us and our, you know, and our predecessors will not be around. And I do think that the short-sightedness of thinking that that's a better will inevitably come back and bite anyone who thinks that uh, an authoritarian or autocrat state is better than, you know, having to put up with other people who disagree with you is incredibly short-sighted because there, as the old adage goes uh, from Weimar Germany, when they went for the gypsies, I said nothing. When they went for when they went for the the lame, I said nothing. But when they came for me, no one said anything because no one was left. So let's not have such short-sighted thoughts and start to work towards becoming a cohesion nation again. And maybe we can start to forgive and forget and move on. Thank you so much for joining us on Campfire and Gunsmoke, guys. Once again, this is Nate. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and or YouTube as soon as I get this up. The ability to upload to that one again. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. I appreciate you. If you want to support the show, you can do so over at anchor.com and uh, through the Stripe. You can send a little love that way if you should so choose. Otherwise, thank you so much for joining us today, guys. You have a wonderful night. Bye bye.